Thanks. As you are doing that, welcome to Four Points. If it's your first time here, I want to personally welcome you. My name is Russ. There were some crazy people that through prayer, and it must have been the Holy Spirit, felt the Lord tell them that I was supposed to step in and be the senior pastor here about eight months ago. We've been doing that. Uh, not many blasphemous things have happened. I've not been killed yet, so I, here I am again to preach the Word of God to you until the day comes that someone drags me out of here and tells me I can't do that anymore. Um, we're honored and humbled that you're here. Um, my fa- friends, the Ramos, as you just met them a little bit ago on the video screen, they are planning the first Christian church in a village of 10,000 people. The first one ever. Like, there's never been one. There's no access to the gospel that's ever been there. And so if you want to know why we continue to preach the gospel with such urgency, it is my prayer as a pastor that for many of you, you would not stay here. I know that's crazy, but that you would be trained and inspired and equipped and rooted here, and one day you too, uh, being someone who's from this part of the world, may go to a part of the world where people don't have access to the gospel, and you would be someone on a screen in a church that we would get to support, pray for, and get behind as the gospel goes into a community that it has never been before. That is a driving passion of this pastor's heart, and it is my heart and belief that for many of you who consider yourselves to just be common and not people that would ever do something like that, would find yourself in the uncommon presence of the unique, beautiful, powerful Savior, his name is Jesus, who would empower you by his Holy Spirit and send you to do something so uncommon as planting churches in unreached people group places around the world. Super excited about what God is doing. Y'all, I'm tired. Can I just confess that? We had a wedding this weekend. My kids, they don't get up for school, but they magically wake up at 7.30 on the weekend. Anyone got this disease in your house, this demonic plague that comes in, and your kids, they fight you tooth and nail to get up for school, but then magically they're ready to play at 7.30 on a weekend, and you're like, I haven't even like thought about Jesus yet, much less think about you, and I, I'm, I'm concerned of what's going to come out of my flesh if you don't go back to sleep right now and let me rest, but I was down front, and uh, man, what God has been doing has been nothing short of remarkable. We've now seen, as of this service, over 300 first-time guests in the first eight months of this year. God is doing something unique. We continue to see him powerfully move in our gatherings. And last week we saw seven people get baptized, professing Jesus as their Lord and their leader. And so whether it's through the offerings we're taking that are going to places like Thailand and supporting the ministry and the work that we're doing here, or through the gospel being preached here week in and week out and seeing the lives changed and disrupted, I was standing on the front row and I just felt the Lord say, Russ, are you okay with being inconvenienced again? How many of you know that a move of God is powerful and amazing, but it's not convenient? And for many of you, you can't experience the move of God because you don't want anything out of your ordinary. And what God desires often to do is to inconvenience you with this move of God that disrupts your schedule and your routine. And it takes what you had planned and says, well, isn't that cute? Isn't that precious? Let's set that over here because I've got a different plan that I had in mind for you. And I I want to be a part of a move of God. I don't want to read about moves of God in the Bible that we don't experience as the people of God here. I believe that the Holy Spirit that was in the early church is at work in this church, and he has given us a multitude of people 
people who apart from the Spirit are very common, but because of the Holy Spirit are extremely uncommon, that you have been given spiritual gifts, that you are salt to the earth and a light in darkness, that, that you are loved by God with a love that won't relent and let go of you, that you may have wondered this week, but his mercy is more than your rebellion and his grace is sufficient for your sin. And I, I believe that God really does love you. I know that's crazy, like, I, I, like really, like right now, not like a version of you that you used to be, not a version of you that you hope to be. I, I, I believe God loves you so much that he put his spirit inside of you so that you would become the glory of Christ on earth, that you would represent him uh, in your character, in your conduct, not because you're being a good person, but because the presence of God is at work in your person. And, and I just every single week want to get up here and do everything I can to invite you into what's not comfortable or predictable, to invite you into a life that is marked by the uncommon presence of the Spirit of God. And we're studying a story about a common people who had the Spirit of God make them do something extremely uncommon. 120 believers in an upper room have the Holy Spirit fall on them. And when the people that once were cowards, hiding in darkness, wanting nothing to do with this Jesus, now stand in the same spaces where Jesus 50 days prior had been tried and condemned to the cross, now professing the gospel in a multitude of languages as the festival of weeks, or this festival called Pentecost that happened 50 days after Passover was happening. It was the festival of first fruits. And by the end of chapter 2, there won't just be 120 believers, there'll be around 3,000 believers. And now years later, as the Spirit continues to work through a common people doing an uncommon work for the glory of Jesus, growing his church, there are around a few billion people on earth that profess to be followers of Jesus Christ. That is a move of God. It is a miracle that the 120 carried the message further than Jerusalem, but now it's all over the world around us, and we are closing in on the territories where the gospel has yet touched, and perhaps in our generation, we will be a part of the people that carry the gospel to the last people groups that have yet to hear the good news of not a work-based faith, but the God who came off the mountain not waiting on us to climb it to find him, to find us. Maybe we're the generation that gets it done. We're studying Acts. We're in the second chapter. If you have your Bibles, uh, we've called this series Uncommon Community because that's exactly what it was. God worked through not just a person, but through a community of people. Where we're at in chapter 2 is the disciples are uh, proclaiming the gospel, the good news that the Messiah has come that Jesus has done for us what was predicted in the Old Testament. And as they are proclaiming this in the wonder and awe of the crowd, uh, some of the crowd think that the disciples are drunk. Peter opens his sermon, the first Christian sermon with, we're not drunk, it's too early. <laughs> then in verse 14, Peter stepped forward with the 11 other apostles and shouted to the crowd, listen carefully all of you. Fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem, make no mistake about this. These people are not drunk, as some of you are assuming. Nine o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. No, what you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. So he goes back to the book of Joel. And in fact, what's going to happen in the next few moments is Peter is going to look to, refer to, three Old Testament texts that point to the current work of what God is doing. He's going to quote from memory... The book of Joel, Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. He's also going to recite and look to Psalm 16, 
verses 8 through 11, and Psalm 110, verse 1, all making up this first Christian sermon at Pentecost, pointing to Jesus being the promised Messiah of what's to come. The sermon breaks down into three parts. In the first part, Peter says, what was promised in the Old Testament is happening now. In the second part, he says, the Messiah that was promised is named Jesus. We'll see that in verses 22 to 36. And then finally, the last part, he says, here is what God is inviting, to, inviting you to now because the Messiah has come. And this message holds true and merit for us today. So first, he says, what is promised has come. And he starts by quoting Joel. Look at it in verse 17 with me. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. And your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit, even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. Okay, really quick. So there's 120 gathered in the upper room waiting on the Holy Spirit to come. Uh, you have the 11 disciples. They add Matthias with them to give them 12 to replace Judas the betrayer. We're told in verse 14 that Peter stepped forward with the 11 other apostles and shouted to the crowd. And so here's what we see. There's, and, and many believe that the Holy Spirit falls on all 120. They're all proclaiming the gospel and the good news to the crowd, which makes sense since you don't have a microphone. So if there's several thousands of people that are there, in order for you to articulate a message in a large crowd, in a large gathering, you would need a lot of voices. The Spirit brings them into some sense of unity to where people are hearing the gospel in their own language. And in the midst of that, the eleven and Peter step into the center of the crowd and begin to uh, point to and give clarity to what is happening miraculously in the midst of the crowd around them. And so the prophet Joel prophesied that there will be a day where the Spirit will be poured out on his servants, and it points to men and women alike, and they will prophesy, and I will cause wonders in the heavens above and signs on earth below, blood and fire and clouds of smoke. The sun will become dark. The moon will turn blood red. Some of you have spent a lot of time on late night Christian TV studying that. It was already talked about in the Bible, but we'll keep going. Before the great and glorious day of the Lord arrives, but everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And this is the highlight. This is the, the crux of Peter's message. It's verse 21. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now let me give you some context. The book of Joel was written, obviously, in the Old Testament, and it was written during the midst of a severe locust plague that devoured all the food in the land, creating a severe famine. So when this prophecy was given, it was originally given in its original context after there was no food and starvation and people were dying. In the midst of that, uh, in his prophecy, Joel calls them in their hardship to draw near to God in repentance and trust that in doing so, that God would restore them. I was talking to a pastor friend this week. There's a lot of people that are concerned about what's going to happen later this fall uh, with everything that's happened in Ukraine and how much food they provide for the entire world. What are we faced with? And, and in fear almost, the pastor was confiding in me that he was afraid to move forward with any kind of conviction because he was afraid about what was going to happen with the global market and what was going to happen on a global scale when it came to food and what should he be preparing because he just felt underprepared for what could happen. <clears throat> And I, I quickly 
went back to some old stories that I heard from some old head preachers, KJVers, okay? Like KJV only, 1611, only way to heaven. Anybody ever met one of them? <clears throat> they get up and they yell a lot, and everything ends with God, with G-A-W-D. God! Anyway. <clears throat> Just me? That's where I grew up in Piedmont. No lie. Went to a revival one time with my buddy when I was a teenager, and there were three preachers. I'd never seen it. There were three preachers on the stage. They were sitting on those really high back chairs like kings, and they rotated preaching. One said he was going to preach hell. The other said he was going to preach fire. It wasn't fire. It was fire. And the other preached brimstone. I still don't know what brimstone is, but he preached it. But I never will forget some of the old heads. They talked about growing up in the Depression. You know what's amazing about what happened during the Depression in this country? The church didn't suffer, it had a revival. Because the options for distraction were eliminated. You didn't have a million things to go to on the weekend. You didn't have money to go away on eight vacations a year. So guess what you did? You drew close to God. Unfortunately, it seems in this country that we don't see moves of God apart from suffering because most of us wander from God in our prosperity. This isn't new to America, it's common in history. For the majority of you, you come near to God when you got no other option. He's the don't break glass unless it's an emergency option in most of your lives. So here we have a plague that's happened in the, in the midst of the land of God. For the people of God, they're suffering, they're starving, and in it, they're called by the prophet Joel to draw near to God. Could I encourage you, if you are prospering, that this should not be a license for you to drift, but this should be a license for you to cling close. Uh, it is scary when you are blessed with blessings to know that those things that are meant to be a means for you to worship God can quickly become a means for you to dishonor God. And for some of you, you have been blessed immensely by God. But instead of honoring God, it's become an idol and a protection and an offense that separated you from the very people that God has blessed you with the resource to be a blessing to isn't it amazing that whenever you look at the story of Lazarus, he's uh, uh, in this life suffers and goes through lots of tribulation, and the rich man built up big fences to keep him away from his gate. So Lazarus sleeps at the rich man's fence that's meant to keep him away. I want you to understand that to whom much is given, much is required. Some of y'all haven't been reading your Bible lately, or you just don't want to say it out loud. Is that what it is? And for many of you, you've been immensely blessed to be a blessing to the nations. This is God's heart. This is God's desire that you would work and do what God has given you the ability to do so that you could be a blessing and open-handed and charitable to those that are around you. Not out of guilt, but out of joy because God, being rich in his own mercy, has lavished you as an object of mercy with his mercy in an unending way that is sufficient for all of your rebellion and all of your sin and all of your shortcomings. Therefore, we in response, free will, give generously to those that are around us. So the people are going through. Let me get off the soapbox before everyone gets really quiet and stops paying attention. <clears throat> They're going through a plague. That's the context. He then, in the midst of that plague, inviting them to draw near to God and repent and get close, he then also connects the current suffering to the, to the certain future of the hope that's to come in the Messiah. And that's what Peter is quoting, this prophecy that was stated during the midst of very difficult times. There's great encouragement here for those of us that are in hard times. Some of you are there. Here's what I want you to know about hard times. Hard times drive us 
either from God or toward God, but there's no one in hard times that's indifferent about God. Hard times drive you from God or toward God, but I've never met someone who's uh, kind of in the middle when it comes to their opinion about God during hard times. So if you're in hard times, difficult seasons that you didn't predict in your life, my question is, are you drawing towards him or are you running from him? The second thing that we learn about hard times is that in drawing toward God, we are to remind ourselves and others around us about the promises of God in the midst of hard times. Right now, if you're in hard times, you may be suffering. You, you may be in a season of life that is not predictable with anything good. You're almost surprised by peace. You're surprised by a reprieve. You're surprised when something good does happen, and then you're almost fearful to enjoy it because you're looking over your shoulder for something else bad to happen. You've got hard times PTSD. If you're there, the Bible, the book of Joel, would encourage and remind us to remember that suffering is a part of the plight of everyone's life on this side of eternity, but in Christ Jesus, it has been assured as a temporary season in our lives. Suffering, because of Christ, is temporary. It's part of the road, but it is not the end of the road. And sometimes in hard times, you've got to remind yourself, I'm not at the end. I'm not at the end. Secondly, in hard times, we need to remind ourselves, and this is what Joel is doing with the people of God here in his book, is that there is a future and it is filled not with disparity, not with tragedy, but with hope. Because God holds the future. When you ask God to be your Lord, when you submit to him to be your leader, it's his responsibility to look out for your well-being. It is no longer your job to make sure your well-being is everything that you want it to be. It is now in his hands. And let me just encourage you that when you put your well-being into the hands of God in the midst of hard times, you can be assured that there is a future that he has planned for you. And that future will be marked by this big word that's underestimated in our need for it in all of our lives. And it's called hope. And that's God's intention. And that's God's ending work for your life. So, what we see in this first sermon is Peter going back to an old prophecy that points to what's happening in that moment, that there would come a day where the Spirit of God would not come to a person occasionally, but he would rest on a people uh, consistently to enable them to go to the nations in the very last times, so that every hear, ear would hear and every eye would see the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Peter's context, and using Joel 2, he's saying, the wait for the promise is over. Now is the time to walk in it. Let me give you context of what he's saying is over. The people in Jerusalem were waiting for someone that could forgive them. They were waiting for someone that could redeem them. They were waiting for the visible leadership of God before them. They were looking for a rooted identity from him. Many of them needed a fresh start, a power not just to forgive them for what they've done, but to deliver them from the very person that they had been. And what Peter is saying is that season of waiting is over because now in Christ Jesus, as the Holy Spirit was empowering them to witness, the time 
for you to receive it had come. So can I say to you today, the time for you to root your new identity in Christ has come. The time for you to understand who you are in Christ has come. The time for you to understand that forgiveness is not earned, but it is received as a free gift from Christ has come. The time for you to understand and know and realize that redemption is the sweat equity of Christ and not up to you has come. The time for you to understand that you are not wandering aimlessly as orphans or children without a leader or a father, but you have the Lord as your leader who is the good shepherd. The time for you to understand that he is here and near and able and ready to lead has come. We are stubborn in the South. I, I, I love good old boys, but a lot of you, you just like, I, I don't, I'll come to God whenever I've done 80% of the work. Quit it. That is the most anti-gospel thing in my mind that I can think of. What's really going on is not you wanting to work off your debt. It's you wanting to be bullheaded and not surrender your life. And the time has come for you to surrender. The time has come for you to stop acting like you're a God in and of yourselves, that you are able to do something great that's going to honor and please God and wake up to the reality that apart from God, life is meaningless and where you're going is useless and you need him. You need him to intervene because you are helpless. I don't care how many bootstraps you got, you ain't got enough. Stop trying to be your own strength. Stop trying to be your own power. The time has come for you to understand that his grace is sufficient for a knucklehead, a chucklehead like you. So this is Peter's message. What is promised has come. Then, in verse 22, he points to the name behind the promise. Verse 22, look at it with me. People of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene as the Messiah, by doing powerful miracles and wonders and signs through him, as many of you well know. But God knew what would happen. And his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed with the help of the lawless Gentile, you na- with the help of lawless Gentiles. You nailed him to the cross and killed him. What's Peter doing? He's preaching the gospel. Here's the gospel. All have sinned. All of you, lawless coming from good families, whatever, you've all sinned. You're in the same place apart from the grace of Christ. And you thought that you could, in your rebellion, deceive God. How many of you came in today not to surrender to God, but just to deceive him? Let's get, oh, let's get, oh, let's have some church, y'all. This ain't the place where we come and, we we don't dilly-dally. No, 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 we ain't dilly-dallying up in here. Some of y'all had no intention of doing anything but pleasing the person you're sitting by by showing up here today. You had no intention of surrendering to God, no intention of, of, of yielding your life to his leadership and lordship, no intention of being filled with the Holy Spirit and empowered. You, you just came because you ought to, because grandma expects it, because so-and-so badgered you and you're like, this will shut them up for football season. You didn't, you didn't come to actually surrender. And you may deceive everyone in the room. But the person that matters in the room will never be deceived by you. I'm burdened for you. Because your apathetic indifference makes you think that you sit in a fine position with lots of life ahead of you. And you are not promised tomorrow, son. You cross your arms as if you were God and self-sufficient and able, as if you pulled one over on everyone's eyes, but you will not trick God. 
And there will be a day, whether it's in short time or a long amount of time, where you will stand before God and give an account for your life. And my plea, my hope, would be that you would hear the gospel message and understand that it is not about you being self-sufficient or a better version of yourself. It's not about you climbing a mountain of your own self-righteousness to find God at the top, pleased and excited that you found your way to him. But the gospel is that Jesus came off the mountain to find you. In your indifference and apathy, in your attitude that acts like you don't need him to call you out and to disrupt you. And he sent a barefoot, I mean, young dude to do it. Which made many of you cross your arms and go, well, this ain't going to be any good. (laughs) Buckle up. When you don't have anything but the Holy Spirit, God does big things. His message is that Jesus is the Messiah. He says God's endorsed him through the powerful miracles and wonders that he's done. What did Jesus do? Well, there's the whole, like, Lazarus come out of the tomb thing. That's kind of cool. How many of you have seen people walking around funeral homes raising people from the dead lately? If so, maybe a Messiah. If not, may not. How many of you have seen people take a few loaves of bread and a few fish and, I don't know, feed 5,000 people? Or how about another instance, feed 4,000 people? Anybody? Just looking, looking to see if anyone's seen anyone lately down off Reedville Road, you know, like, stop by the distillery, next thing you know, like, everyone's on a buffet. I mean, it's just like, what happened? So, so God's endorsing that this Jesus is not like everyone else. He's disrupting everything. But look at what he goes on to say in the midst of the gospel. You nailed him to a cross, verse 23. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep its grip on him. (laughs) Ain't no grave gonna hold my body down. Remember that one? Ain't no grave. Singing it out of tune. Don't care. God released him from death and raised him back to life. And then he quotes the Psalms. King David said this about him. I see the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken, for he is right beside me. No wonder my heart is glad and my tongue shouts his praises. My body rests in hope, for you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. You have shown me the way of life, and you will fill me with your joy and your presence forever. Dear brothers, think about this. You can be sure that the patriarch, David, who was king, kind of a big deal to the people of Israel, wasn't referring to himself, for he died and was buried, and his tomb is still here among us. But he was a prophet. And he knew God had promised with an oath that one of David's own descendants would sit on his throne. David was looking into the future and speaking of the Messiah's resurrection. He was saying that God would not leave him among the dead or allow his body to rot in the grave. God raised Jesus from the dead. And we are all witnesses of this. Now he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. And the Father, as he had promised, gave the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us. Joel prophesied it. Again, he's pointing to the Bible and saying, if you don't like it, Look to the scriptures. So you should ask yourself that. Some of you are like, I don't like the way this guy preaches. Well, is it in the scriptures and is it in line with the Bible? And if so, then it's not my problem. If I'm out of context with the Bible and it's not within context of true orthodoxy to the scripture, then then that's a bigger problem that elders need to get me out of here. Some people come in here like, I hate this church. I don't want to be around this church. Why? Because he said this. I had one person one time out in California. That, that distance is a little bit, so it's not personal to anyone here. One time in California, they were mad at me because I said Jesus is the only way to heaven. And they're like, I can't believe you said that. I brought my friend, and they believe in many ways to heaven. And I said, well, like, how did I say that? And he said, well, you said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes in the Father except through me. And I said, do you realize you just quoted Scripture? 
That's John 14, 6. That, that was not an opinion. That was me reading God's word. Still were mad at me. Never came back to church. Oh, well. God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this, verse 32. Now he's exalted to place the highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. And the Father, as he had promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out on us, just as you see and hear today. For David himself never ascended into heaven, yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. Again, quoting the Psalms. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. What does the entire gospel message hang on? That Jesus rose from the dead. This is the entire crux of the gospel. If Jesus is not risen from the dead, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. How big is the resurrection? It's everything. It's everything. If he is risen, then he is able to forgive us sins. Because the just wage of sin is death, Romans 6.23. If he is dead and not risen, then he is not a savior and he is not able to deliver you from sin. And we are looking good in church clothes for no good reason. Now why do I believe in the resurrection? Well, that could be a 37-week sermon series. Some of you have figured out that I know how to squeeze a little bit on scripture and sit in a text for a little bit longer than some of you would like. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 5, there's an apologetic. I'll just use a simple one that's already there in the text. We don't have to use any Josephus or historians. This is what it says about the resurrection. After the resurrection, he was seen by Peter, the one preaching in this text in Acts, and then by the 12. Can you go to the next verse with me? 15.6? Nope. 15.6? I just apparently shorted myself. Sometimes that happens. I'll go there. It's okay. It's first service. They're gracious. They forgive me. Verse 6 goes on to say, <laughs> he was seen by Peter and then the 12. And then after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Verse 7, then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him, for I am the least of the apostles, speaking of Paul. So here's the apologetic. How many people does it take to prove that someone has been raised from the dead and not be like an inside job where they're trying to pull one over everyone's eyes? Well, let's start. There's a guy named Peter. He's a coward. He stands and denies Jesus 50 days prior to this sermon. Now he's standing publicly professing Jesus. In a few chapters, they're going to say, don't talk about Jesus or we'll kill you. And he says, you can kill me, but I can't stop talking about what I've seen. You don't move from being a coward to that bold without there being some significant event that has happened to shift your focus and attention. In fact, many people will lie about something until the point of death. And then at death, they change their mind. There's a lot of scientists that were atheists that on their deathbed begin to question everything that they believed and everything that they said. I can pull up footage. What is Peter doing at the last moments of his death? Historically, it's believed that he argued with the people that were crucifying him that he could not be crucified right side up because that's the way his Savior died. So when you crucify me, make it upside down. Something happened that changed Peter. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 5 says, the entire Christian message hangs on the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 5 says Peter believed he had risen, number one. N number two, the second name that comes up is the, the twelve, or the disciples, most of which died martyrs' deaths, 
the Apostle John is one that they boiled alive, put on the island of Patmos because he survived the boiling alive and he wrote the book of Revelation because God wasn't done with him yet. Thomas was believed to have taken the gospel to India where he died a martyr's death being beaten with clubs until he died. You can read lots of history about the work of the uh, disciples after the resurrection. What's interesting is none of them are historically accounted for recanting their faith. But almost all of them are accounted for having died for their faith. Then it goes from the 12 to my favorite apologetic, the 500. Think about this. Paul is saying, then he appeared to 500 people, most of which are still what? So if you don't believe Peter and you don't believe the disciples, go walk around Jerusalem and be like, hey, a couple years back, was there a dude that died on a cross that then like started walking around again and appearing? And you'll probably run into somebody that's like, it's the strangest thing. I was hanging out with Sally. We were going to get some brunch. It was a crazy day. Next thing I know, there was a big commotion. And there was a big crowd of people. And we were standing there. And there's the dude that was on the cross. And everyone was like, what? And I was like, huh? And <laughs> Pretty good apologetic, right? There's some power in numbers here. We move past the 500. And the 500 gets us to James. Now, which James are we talking about? To be brief, I believe it's Jesus' half-brother James because the James that was the disciple was already killed and martyred by 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He had already been put to the end of the sword and died. So we're talking about Jesus' half-brother. When's the last time you looked at a half-brother and thought, hmm, son of God, just looking for hands, just looking for hands, right? What would it take for you to think my half-brother is the Messiah and son of God? Some miracles. Think about this. Biblically, in Mark chapter 3, verse 21, look at what it says. Mark 3, 21. When his family, that would include James, heard what was happening, they tried to take Jesus away. He's out of his mind. Okay? Galatians chapter 2. A little bit later in church history. In fact, James, this would be Jesus' half-brother, Peter and John, who were known as pillars of the church. How do you go from he's crazy to he's the son of God. And you grew up with him. I, I would submit to you that what the Bible professes as a likely cost may very well be what happened. James, Jesus' half-brother, saw Jesus dead in a tomb and then saw him alive. That shifted his perspective to the point that he became a leader of the church of Jerusalem. Some of you are like, well, there must have been a lot of money involved. Have you not read your Bible? Paul is running around gathering money because Christian believers in Jerusalem are starving and dying because they have no access to food because of their faith. And James is leading that church on the verge of starvation. You think money's involved? Like if money's involved, you quit when the buffet line runs out. Instead, it's reported, there's two conflicting reports as to how he died. One is that they took Jesus' half-brother James to the top of the temple. They said, recant that your brother is the son of God. He refused, and they threw him off the temple top. His legs broke, and then they beat him in with clubs and killed him that way. The other is the belief that they took him, and they actually stoned him and threw rocks and killed him. Both account for the fact that he died professing his half-brother Jesus as Messiah. The entire Christian faith hangs on a resurrection. It gives us hope and reason for the fact that you and I can be forgiven of our sins. 
But there's proof and reason that we can believe in it. I mean, you don't go from being a coward to a bold witness or from the 11 who scatter to being 11 who die witnessing to the gospel of Christ. So appearing over 500 people, your half-brother James purporting to be a follower of you. And then there's this guy named Paul, and that's a big problem because Paul spent the majority of his life trying to snuff out the Christian faith, but then he lives the rest of his life ultimately being beheaded in Rome, professing the Christian faith. In fact, this book, Acts, ends talking about the fact that Paul in Rome under house arrest preached the gospel freely for two years until he was ultimately died in a martyr's death for professing the gospel. So you don't go from being an enemy of the gospel like Paul was to being someone who dies professing the gospel unless there is a miracle. There's a lot of different reasons and areas you can go for what happened. I would submit to you that what the Bible says is true, that Jesus genuinely raised from the dead and therefore it is time for you and I to stop dilly-dallying around with our lives and indifference towards God and start walking to him instead of from him in full allegiance and trust that he can be our Lord, leader, and Savior. So Peter preaches the message. In verse 37, it says this, concluding chapter 2. Look at it with me. Peter's words pierced their hearts. And they said to him and other apostles, brothers, what should we do? I love that it says in the ESV that they were cut to the heart. How many of you have ever in the midst of preaching been cut to the heart? Like you're hearing the word of God. Maybe it's something you've been familiar with. But in the midst of hearing it, it just hits you deep. It moves from being impersonal in the midst of a crowd to personal within the crowd. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's what's happening here in this text. This impersonal, there's a few thousand people hearing it. It it becomes personal at an individual level for a few thousand that are standing there. It moves from he's talking about them to no, he's talking about me. He's speaking to me. I've got to do something. I can't sit here and just hear this and stay indifferent or ignore it or act like it didn't happen. I was talking to me. So they say, what must we do? Verse 38, Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins. Turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you, to your children and to those far away All who have been called by the Lord are God. Then Peter continued preaching for a long time. See, I'm not the only one that doesn't know how to wrap it up. (laughs) For a long time, strongly urging all his listeners, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Those who believe what Peter said were baptized. And on this day that was meant to be a harvest that had been celebrated for thousands of years as a sign of the first fruits from Passover, now on the first day of the church... We see 3,000 people becoming believers. Hmm. In just a few minutes, I want to invite you who have walked in an indifference and apathy, pulling the wool over perhaps everyone's eyes in here, who have grown up in the religious, cultural context of the Christian South, to sincerely ask yourself a hard question, and that is this Do you have a real relationship with Jesus Christ? Not religious, real. Religious is you, you, you act the part of what you've seen mirrored by others. Real is you have an active, engaged, access relationship to Jesus. Do you have a real relationship with Jesus? 
Do you know his name and do you know he's dependable? Have you asked him to be the Lord and leader, not of your family's life, but of your life? Have you asked him to be your Messiah and Savior, to forgive you for the sins that you've done, to fill you with the Holy Spirit so that you can be delivered from the person that you've been? Do you have a real relationship with Jesus? Think on that as I read this last verse to you. Out of the 3,000, the believers form a community. They get together. Why? Because they're new to this. They're figuring it out. Living abnormal under the dependence of the Holy Spirit, that, that's a weird thing in society. It says all the believers in this gathering devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. They were devoted to the Word, to the fellowship. They had fun together. Like, like, they, they, were in, like, like they laughed. Like I gave you four or five really good opportunities to laugh, and I'm disheartened that you didn't fellowship with me in laughter today. Maybe next week. They were devoted to the Word. They fellowshiped to sharing meals, including the Lord's Supper. What were they doing? They're gathering around table. Why? Because when you sit around tables, isn't it funny how science often will back Christian stuff? They talk about families that eat meals together with no technology, like the impact it makes on the self-esteem of the kids because they're having conversations around the table. That's what happens around the table. You share life. What's going on? Where have you been? What's your story? They weren't consumed with the schedule of running themselves around and running themselves ragged, so they, they slowed down. Look, in order to be a good friend, sometimes you've got to slow down. One of my favorite stories about that is the paralytic that's brought to Jesus. He had a group of friends that slowed down to carry him. For some of you to be in good community, you, you've got to slow down. Get around a table. Eat some pasta. Share stories about life. Talk about hardships. And look, they prayed. They were devoted to the word. They fellowshiped. They broke bread around the table, pointing to, remembering the salvation of Jesus with the Lord's Supper. And they prayed together. Look at what happened. A deep sense of awe came over them all. And the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. So they, they were devoted to each other, and there was a sense of awe. Like, can you believe that we're here? Can you believe that we get to do this? Can you believe that God's moving in our midst in this way? And here's what's amazing. Some of you have been here long enough to where you have no sense of awe anymore. And it's not because the presence of God changed in the house. It's because your posture towards the presence changed. Your familiarity made you go, isn't that the carpenter's son, not isn't that the Savior? Some of you need to change a posture because God is still doing awe-inspiring things in his presence, but your attitude and your apathy and your familiarity are robbing you from a sense of honor that would allow you to experience the awe that we see in the text. Look at verse 44. And all the believers met together in one place. They shared everything that they had. Why? Because their greatest treasure was Jesus and not their stuff. They sold their property and their possessions and shared money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord was adding to the fellowship those that were being saved. Yeah, so here's what we ask a couple times a year. We ask you to be inconvenienced, to be interrupted in your routine and in your life, and to get into community with a group of people. Why? Because we do not believe that you can reach your full potential in Christ as a solo Christian. We believe that God appoints and puts people around you. 
spur and nudge and challenge you to go harder after your faith than you would apart from that community. And it's not always easy. Sometimes it's awkward. You go into someone's house, they have a cat, you have allergies, you balloon up, it gets weird. You have to be like, can you kill the cat or can we move the meeting? All are options. Sometimes you share your life with other believers and they're immature and in their immaturity they use and sin against you. It's not easy, but it is essential to your growth. And listen, it is my heart, it is my ambition that if you are in isolation, trying to walk in a fervent, passionate relationship with Jesus, that today you would understand that it's group launch Sunday, which means there's a lot of people that have been inconvenienced and made margin in their calendar so that you could be inconvenienced and make margin in your calendar so that God could show up around a table where you pray and study the Word of God and fellowship together so that you could build each other up and encourage each other. And perhaps if you find yourself in a I never thought moment this fall, you'll have a group of believers that are like, we don't know what to do, but we'll bring a casserole and we'll pray. So I'm asking you, as a church, this church has grown by 41%. You know what's not grown? Groups. They've not grown. We have a busy life. We have a misprioritized life. And a lot of churches just won't say that because we just want you to fill seats. I don't care if you show up or not. Don't care. Like, I'm not afraid of going and working at Sam's Club. So, we're either going to be obedient and do what God calls us to do, or y'all can get butt hurt and leave and not come back, but we're not going to sit here in indifference. Not going to do it. Not going to do it. So you're like, he's aggressive every week. Every week. It's not going to change. I want God's best for you. I want it in your family. And it, dri- it drives me. Like, I stay up at night. Like, no, 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 don't clap. I stay, like, go sign up. Don't clap. Go, go do something. Like, I'm burdened for you to grow. I want you to grow. I don't want you to be the same. I don't want to be the same. I want you to depend on Jesus and see him miraculously move in your life. And it's not convenient and it's not comfortable. I want it for you so bad, but I can't make it happen. We've got space. But you've got to move. So then the service, go. Find some people. They're, they're weird. They're going to be weird. We're all weird here, okay? It's weird. Maybe awkward. Like, man, I tried that once. And then these, I'm going to get up here and plead with you to do it again. And again, and again, until you're like at a wedding like I was last night. And all these new friends that have been in a community group together go and stand up and we're snapping pictures because they're like, and none of them were friends until community happened. None of them would have been in each other's wedding until that happened. Now she's got a sisterhood around her. Oh, man. Anyway, our prayer team's going to be here. If you do not have a relationship with Jesus, I beg and plead with you to stop trying to play the, play the part and act a role and come confessing that you don't have what you don't have, that you need what you've yet to receive. Receive Jesus as Savior and Messiah. The time has come. Be changed. For others, go out those doors, scan a QR code. There's group leaders out there and get into a community group. And who knows, maybe this fall (laughs) will be one of the busiest seasons of your life, but it may be a season of life that is marked by significant growth in your faith and it may change your family tree and your lineage forever. And that's my ambition. You move as the Lord leads. In Jesus' name, amen.